Hello, I'm Peter Dunn from the University of Warwick, and today I'm joined by Sir Peter Moores. Businessman, art collector and philanthropist, Sir Peter Moores is the son of Sir John Moores, founder of the Liverpool-based Littlewoods Football Pools, of which Sir Peter was a chairman from 1977 to 1980 and a director until 1993. Sir Peter worked at Glideboard and the Vienna State Opera, and he subsequently pioneered recordings of opera in English, as well as rare little-performed operas. In 1964, he set up the Peter Moores Foundation, a charitable foundation to support opera, the visual arts, education, youth, health and environmental projects. Examples of such support include scholarships for promising young opera singers, the establishment in 1994 of the Transatlantic Slave Gallery in the Merseyside Maritime Museum and the expansion of the British Museum's collection of Chinese bronzes. In 1993, the foundation bought Compton Verde in Warwickshire, and restored it to make a gallery that would hold permanent collections as well as hosting international exhibitions. Sir Peter has been a governor of the BBC, a trustee of the Tate Gallery and a director of Scottish Opera. He was awarded the Medal of the Italian Republic in 1974, a CBE in 1991 and a German Staffer Medal in 2008. He was knighted in 2003 and he holds honorary degrees from the University of Lancashire and the University of Wales. Today he becomes an honorary Doctor of Letters of the University of Warwick. Welcome to the University of Warwick, Sir Peter, and congratulations on your honorary degree. I'm very proud of that. Can I first ask you what, what receiving this award means to you? It means recognition for what we've done, what the, what the Peter Moores Foundation has done. Rec- recognition especially here where Compton Verney is so well known. And indeed, I was going to come to Compton Verney. It's what you're most famous for in this area in Compton Warwickshire is your acquisition of Compton Verney and turning it into a wonderful art museum and art gallery. Why Compton Verney? Why there? Because the great uh, we were looking for somewhere. Uh, I didn't want it to be in London because every bloody art thing is in London and that means that the majority of London people and the majority of tourists get to them and most people... Uh, don't because it means a complete day out of their time, so they don't go. So I wanted to be within reach of London, but much much closer to the middle of England. And when this uh, place came up for for sale, I noticed that it's um, I think it's an hour and a half from the motorway junction, which is five miles away, uh, and fifty um, percent of the population of England lives within that range. So it's the sort of thing you can get there and back home for tea. And I've done that very thing myself as I actually live next village along in Kyneton. Uh, I've been several times with my son and, and I've got a favourite thing in, in all those exhibitions. I'm a bit of a Cromwell fan so I like the Cromwell miniature you have. My eight-year-old loves the volcano paintings. Is there any one or maybe a couple of items in the permanent collections there that are particular favourites of yours? Well, it's difficult to answer because I'm largely responsible for getting things bought because it's not my collection. It wasn't, it wasn't there. there was, it was an empty house and we started by buying things and I, uh, having originally funded it uh, and putting the funding in, uh, I wanted to see what was to be done. I went to auctions and I bought things having carefully asked advice of the art experts and asking advice from the people who were running the museum, did they want that? But it is, therefore, things that I have chosen, 
And it's very interesting living with them afterwards because some things about a year later you think, oh, that's quite nice. And some things next to you think, oh, isn't that sweet? I do love that. So I don't have a particular favourite because I, I'm too changeable. I can imagine it must be almost all your favourites in one way or another as, you, as you've acquired them or you know, found you should Some of them, them you wish you hadn't. <laughs> I won't ask which. <laughs> well, of course, there is also the thing that as we gradually expand, we find that we've got two or three of the same sort of subject and it isn't always the one that you bought first that you want to keep. So then you have a little quarrel about what we call deaccessioning, and that can be quite quarrelsome because people, the people who live in the old-fashioned sort of uh, museum ethos think that you shouldn't sell anything. You should put it away in a hole in the ground and not show it ever again, but keep it. And I don't see any point in that, because art doesn't die if you sell it. It just goes back into, onto the market, or it may be bought by another museum. If you don't show you or don't want it, no one's going to know. So when you want deaccession, you ask all the other museums first, and if they don't want it, well, then you put it back on the market, and somebody hangs it up in their wall, and it's still very nice. That sounds very sensible. You're obviously keen for many people to see as much art as possible. I know you can't speak for contractual reasons about which movie it is, but we know as we speak now that Compton Verne is being used as a site of filming for a major Hollywood motion picture, if we can use that cliché. This is going to attract a lot more people to come and see Compton Verne, I guess. Well, is that a good thing? See, they want to come and see what it is. That It's good for us because we, get, we make money, and, of course, we, as we have to keep ourselves going... We have to make money, and we have to raise money. I, and they're going to raise the money and... It'll be self-financing, is it? Yes, by, by, yeah. by doing things yeah. like um, weddings. We've got, we've got a chapel. Oh, it's still a church? Oh, yeah. you don't, oh that's, that's quite so handy. It, it isn't actually in use as such. Oh. Because of that, we want the public to come and see it, but we want the public to come and pay to come into it mm. as well. Indeed. So this will have double value for Compton Verney. It'll get short-term additional financing. Plus, by being a movie that people want to come and see where it was filmed, it'll bring more oh, audience sort of to Compton They're interested in, in the place, because, of course, it might be a dreadful movie, we don't know. <laughs> it might be a bit of Harry Potter, we don't know yet. <laughs> if only you'd had a Harry Potter as well, you know, coming to thousands. Yeah. <laughs> uh, of course, there are many other things that, you, that you've given philanthropic support for, and one of them that stands out for me, uh, it seems so different from all the others, is a, a museum in international slave trade in Liverpool. Uh, so why international slave trade and, and why Liverpool? Well, I did try and sell it all around the place and no one wanted it. <laughs> Bristol didn't want it. Uh, I didn't really try very hard in London. Liverpool didn't want it and I said, you bloody take it. But Liverpool has obviously... Uh, some, there's a family connection to Liverpool, I guess. Yes, yeah. well, I worked in Liverpool for Indeed. years of my life. Indeed. And I imagine that in terms of it started off as being uh, the slave trade, I guess, was a maritime thing, and Liverpool is a maritime city, I guess. It must have had some element of that. Liverpool was an enormous place for the process of the slave trade coming. Funnily enough, the slaves didn't go through Liverpool at all. Well, the thing was that Liverpool exported, because in the days before the Manchester Ship Canal, everything, everything went out of Lancashire through Liverpool. It went from Liverpool and out to the west coast of Africa, where they then loaded up with slaves and they took them to the Caribbean, southern states of America, and they, from there they bought what America was exporting, which was tobacco and things, and they brought it to Liverpool. Very few slaves ever got to Liverpool. But it was a key yeah. part of that chain of the, of the trade yes. in like I can see that. So uh, we've obviously covered Compton Verney for obvious reasons. Uh, we've, we've covered the International Slave Trade Museum. 
But there are so many other things that you've given philanthropic support for. I started in 1964, you see, so that's a long time ago. Yes, I was only born in 63 myself. So you, you have been doing it a long time. You've, you've done many, many things. Well, I uh, actually did it out of my own. 64 is when we established the, the, uh, the foundation and made it a sort of proper charity, uh, which has a lot of tax advantages. But I originally started it out of my own pocket by giving money to singers, young singers, in the 50s. So the young singers were what first got you excited about supporting the arts? Uh, young was it opera singers? Or? Yes, young yeah. opera singers. So one of the first singers I helped was someone who was getting on very well but hadn't had their big success, and this was Joan Sutherland. And I went and asked her, and I gather you're coming on, would you like me to help you get on a little faster? Because, as you can read in the woman's biography, they just were very short of money when they were climbing up the stairs. When she got to her big success... She was away, so after about three years, she said, thank you very much, that's enough. There was a woman called Kirsten Flagstad, who's probably not known anymore, but she said uh, that she had got on well because she had a good voice and she only chose to take the work that she wanted because her husband was rich enough to keep her. So I read that, I thought, well, now that might apply to younger singers as well, so I started on Sharon Sutherland. Oh, well, her name is known now again because once more you've mentioned it in this podcast. So, I think many more people will be looking her up on Wikipedia. If nothing else today, and you continue to support opera by recording little performed operas as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah we've got two two completely different families of operas that we've recorded. One is operas that are by um, people who were famous and got laid over, like Rossini wrote a lot of operas, but the most of them didn't get produced nowadays. Um, and we we gave we gave or gave money to four recordings, or we just made the recordings ourselves. But we gave a Donizetti opera recently called Maria di Rohan from to the Royal Opera House. We gave them the money and they recorded. And we just got some very nice crits and Linda de Chamonix and things like that. But we also did a completely different thing. The popular operas that everyone's heard of, like Madame Butterfly, we recorded all those in English, which is, a lot of people think is, sac- is terrible, you know. The language, language is sacrosanct, which the answer is tosh. <laughs> My mother used to say, don't take me to any more of that stuff. She wanted to hear it in English. And she got it in English on the records. I think I would too, I agree with her. It's been very interesting talking to you today, Sir Peter. Once again, congratulations on receiving your honorary degree. And, and one last question. Would you have any advice or words for the many other students that are graduating today alongside you?
Well, they have a very difficult situation because they have worked hard, or I hope they have worked hard, to get their degrees, and they've got good degrees, uh, but they're going to have to work hard to find any sort of job and find a job that's worth doing. But they mustn't lose heart in that. They've got to persevere, and they will find one. And if they choose carefully and well, then they will find one that they can go ahead in. Thank you very much once again.